Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that we will soon be recording a special live episode of this podcast, and you can be there too. Best-selling novelist and columnist Lionel Shriver will be joining me on the show live on Zoom on Tuesday, the 11th of October at 7pm, and we'll be taking your questions as well. The event is exclusive to Spiked supporters, our online donor community. So if you're already a Spike supporter, just go to the Spiked website, log into the Supporters Hub, and you can register for the live pod with one click. If you're not a Spike supporter, you can sign up for as little as £5 a month by going to spiked-online.com supporters. So become a Spike supporter today and claim your ticket for my chat with Lionel Shriver before they're all gone. Plus, you'll get to enjoy many more exclusive perks. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters. Now on with the show. They've got themselves into this right pickle and I don't know how LGBT groups can rein in their activities so that they are doing more good than harm. I mean, schools are infested with bizarro groups that make mermaids look actually quite respectable, (laughs) which teach effectively that kids can be born in the wrong body. And that notion is almost designed to make a troubled youngster feel even more troubled. And yet that's what's being promoted in schools up and down the country. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Malcolm Clark. Malcolm, welcome to the show. How do you do? Uh, I feel like this might be one of the most timely pods I've ever recorded because we arranged this quite some time ago and now we're recording it in a week in which there is so much for us to talk about. So that's good. That's a very good start. Um, And I'll just kick off by telling listeners a little bit about you. So Malcolm works in TV. He largely produces TV shows relating to science. He's also a founding member of the LGB Alliance. He campaigns with the LGB Alliance and he campaigns against puberty blockers, i.e. the use of drugs to treat uh, young people who might be confused about their gender or their sexuality. Um, And so as a consequence of that, Malcolm, you will know a thing or two about the current efforts by Mermaids, the trans youth charity, to strip the LGB alliance of its charitable status on the basis that you're not really a charitable organization, but you're a hate group, you're evil, and all the rest of it. And the wonderful thing about that story is that there has been an extraordinary blowback for mermaids. To say they have egg on their face as a consequence of this case would be the understatement of the century. So there is a lot for us to talk about in relation to that. But to kick things off, why don't you outline why you think something like the LGB Alliance is necessary in the 21st century and how you see the LGB Alliance working and and what kind of work you think it needs to do. Wow. Well, there's a lot of reasons for LGB, for for a gay organization that just looks after gay people who are same-sex attracted needs to exist. It just so happens that LGB Alliance is the only registered charity in Britain believe it or not, that exclusively focuses on the interests of um, of what used to be called gay people. Uh, now we say same-sex attracted, uh, which sounds a bit sort of technical and medical, but it's the only way to, to emphasize 
that we're basing our rights as they are defined in law. Uh, in the, the Equality Act 2010, homosexuals uh, were defined as people who are same-sex attracted. And the trans movement, the gender identity movement, ideology or whatever, has wanted for decades really to erase the concept of sex. And so therefore, it was natural for them to want to erase the concept of same-sex attracted. So they, they want um, homosexual to mean same gender attracted. And it can seem very um, Judean people's front to, to be arguing <laughs> about um, a definition in a 2010 law. But of course, once you, once you define homosexuals as same gender, then actually you've erased the concept of homosexuality as we understood it, because it would mean a gay man was attracted to a biological male, but also a biological female, um, which was what we used to call bisexual. And um, equally, of course, one of the reasons that I think they chose a minority like homosexuals rather than heterosexuals, who are the vast majority of people in, in the world and in Britain, you know, 90, whatever, you know, 8% or whatever, 97% of people are heterosexual. But I think they, even the trans lobby realized it might be a big ask to go up to straight guys and say, actually, did you realize that you're actually attracted to, to trans women too? And uh, yeah. up to straight, well, they, they haven't been afraid of bullying straight women. Uh, but maybe they, they thought that was a step too far to begin with to, to try and bully straight men. So that's one reason that the LGB alliance or a gay organization is needed. But of course, I argue that we have to be careful that it doesn't become or doesn't appear to the public to be like a, a, a sort of bun fight between the mm. trans groups and the, and the one or two gay groups that have now sprung up. Because I think it's a, a wider social importance because the gender identity movement is a danger to children. Um, the gender identity movement is a danger to our understanding of factual reality. And much, mm -hmm. not all, obviously, but a lot of the gender identity movement arises out of strange intellectual origins, much of it far left, although not all far left, um, which is basically opposed to industrial society, Western way of life, the American way of life, the nuclear family, the, the building blocks of what we consider our society are loathed by queer theory and the other intellectual roots of the gender identity movement. Uh, and so, yes, there needs to be a gay organization, but a gay organization also recognizes the importance of the, the struggle against this sort of nonsense, if you like. That's a very good outline, and there's a lot of, in that for us to dig into and, and to talk about. And I think in relation to the LGB Alliance, the way I see it is that the importance of a, a, an organization like the LGB Alliance has been proven precisely by the hysterical response to it from sections of the trans lobby, from sections of the supposedly liberal leftish media. Um, and the hatred for the LGB Alliance has been simply extraordinary from some quarters, the way it's referred to as far right on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, a hate group uh, full of straight people pretending to be gay just so they can get one over on the gender identity movement. I mean, all these accusations that are wheeled out constantly. And then, of course, there are the furious efforts to ensure that the LGB Alliance has difficulty raising money, that it can no longer exist as a charity. All, uh, so much abuse ha has been pushed the LGB Alliance's way, which I think actually demonstrates why a movement like this is 
important in order that, as you say, for there to be at least one charitable organization in the country that res- represents uh, same-sex attracted people, homosexual people, as as we used to say a long time ago. So I think that's that has always told a very important story, I think. But I wanted to dig down a little bit more into the homophobia aspect of the gender identity movement. You touched on it briefly there. Uh, because when we move away from same-sex attraction to same-gender attraction, and we talk, rather than talking about sex, we talk about gender, rather than talking about the reality of people's bodies and biology, we talk about their subjective feelings that they might be a woman, they might be a man, they might be a they-them. So there has been this palpable shift in how we understand sex and gender. And that does have a very important a negative impact on the idea of same-sex attraction, doesn't it? But also on the lived experience of same-sex attraction. And I think one good example is what's happening to lesbians. <laughs> lesbians in particular are under extraordinary pressure to accept male-bodied people, i.e. men, into their spaces, onto their dating apps, into the uh, environments that they have spent a very long time creating for themselves in order that they can have freedom of association to express their same-sex attraction and, and, and the things they might need to do in order to live freely in society. There has been an extraordinary pressure on lesbians in particular, hasn't there, to basically allow them uh, men to have sex with them. The whole idea of, of trans is so complex. You know, it used to be transsexual, now it's transgender, it's trans plus, who, who knows exactly what it means. But if it, the reason I'm trying to define trans is that for different groups within, the, if you like, the trans rainbow ha- have been um, homophobic in, di- in, in different ways. So, so mm-hmm. there was a great book, um, Michael J. Bailey, I think, wrote it in probably only 10 years ago. It, it was one of the first examples, it was written by a gay academic and it was called The Man Who Would Be Queen. And um, it, was, it was looking at the whole phenomenon of autogenophilia, autogynophilia, guys who get a kick, um, a deep sexual kick out of dressing as women, as, as imagining themselves as women. That, and he, he was really, I suppose, exploring this spectrum, and he'd focused on that one area. And that's the one area that the trans movement loathes anybody looking at. Um, yeah. Because of course, what it does is it's so, it once it becomes a sexual kink, it's very hard to get people to be as sympathetic as the notion that you were born in the wrong body, very young, and you need to chisel your body to reflect what's in your mind or whatever. That's a real boohoo story, and and and, and for a lot of people who, who have that condition, it, you have to be sympathetic. But a sexual kink is not something that generally you build a social justice movement on, and therefore that book was cancelled very quickly. Um, he was hunted almost, I think, out of his job, and anyone who supported him and gave good reviews of the book, and it's a pretty well-written book, was, was hounded. And that was the beginning, really, of a sort of, sort of reframing of the trans experience to blot out what is, in all the science that I've seen, a, a, a large part, it's not all, it's maybe like a third of people who identify as trans are autogynophiles. And the reason that's important is that group are very much, I think, the group who invade women's spaces, who mm-hmm. uh, want to call themselves lesbians and, and therefore date lesbians. They're mostly... And that's the thing that's unusual is they're mostly heterosexual males. 
So these heterosexual yeah. males decide they're female, decide they're women, because they're still attracted to women because they're heterosexual. The obvious people that they, they want to um, hit on are uh, lesbians because they can stay as identified as a female, but they can also have a heterosexual sex life. But of course, lesbians are not interested in, in male-bodied people. And so that has been a major area. And a group of lesbians had to set up a new dating app that was entirely just for biological females because every single commercial dating app would not allow lesbians to say they only wanted to date with biological females, which is so extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think the other thing, I mean, even although we're all, you know, so we all, do, all like to think that every, you know, male, males and females are totally equal um, and there are no differences. The funny thing is, in this debate, biological females have been the victims mainly and other people who get bullied most and have been the, play, the people who have had their spaces invaded, et cetera, et cetera. It's also interesting that I find that a lot of trans men, i.e. biological females who decided that they want to be men, are really sweet and are really nice and really tolerant. It's almost <laughs> as if there really is a difference between biological males and females and the way that they, they behave. Uh, but that apart, so you're absolutely right that lesbians have been at the, the rough end of, of, of the uh, – the homophobia. There is a another group in the trans umbrella, if you like, trans spectrum, um, who are, if you like, males who, who who feared that they might be homosexual, and then yeah. turn themselves into to females. It's often very effeminate guys who could pass better than some of the big heterosexual blokes, and they decided that either they can you know, have a wider dating range or, or whatever. But at the, and that doesn't sound, and it's not, it's not very bullying. I mean, I don't think of gay men as being bullied by trans people in terms of dating, but um, that group, and a good example, I think, is uh, Juno Dawson, um, was quoted as saying that gay men are just failed trans women. And that, but that, and that's not often stated, but that lies under the surface. And essentially, effeminate men or feminine men really were meant by God or by someone else, by nature, to be women, but it all kind of went wrong. But of course, once you step back from that, that is exactly what 1950s homophobia thought. And so it's just reinvented this idea that anyone who's so-called, that horrible term, gender non-conforming, if it's a tomboy, butch woman, or a feminine guy, then actually we better grab them and reassert the natural binary. I mean, how, we, how in 2022 we came back round to, to reasserting you know, the gender binary. And the bizarre thing is, it's the trans activists who spend the whole time going about, I'm non-binary and smash the binary and blah, blah, blah. And yet their own movement is built around a very fixed yeah. gender binary that most street people gave up. Did you know that learning has been shown to improve your mood? And with the brilliant shows, documentaries and series available on Wondrium, learning doesn't have to be something formal like enrolling in a course or studying. Learning can be something we do on our own terms and it can be fun. I know I feel great after learning something new and on Wondrium it is just so easy. 
Wondrium is the educational platform that helps us all become better versions of ourselves. For example, I just listened to the series Great Artists of the Italian Renaissance, with the likes of Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel and Da Vinci painting the Mona Lisa. No era of artistic achievement is as renowned. So it was wonderful to be taken on an in-depth 36-part guided tour of the Renaissance, curated by an art historian who understands this incredible movement in fascinating detail. And why stop there? Wondrium has unlimited access to thousands of hours of content covering any topic you can imagine. This includes audio and video courses, documentaries, tutorials, and much more. All of it is presented by top professors and experts, and there's no pressure of homework or grades. I know you will benefit from Wondrium too, and I want you to sign up today. Wondrium is offering my listeners a free month of unlimited access. To get this offer, you need to visit my special URL, wondrium.com slash Brendan. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Brendan. You're absolutely right that it is this idea that effeminate men must be women that, you know, there must be, they're women who went wrong somewhere along the line. That is a a very reminiscent of old forms of homophobia and also new forms of homophobia. If we look at somewhere like Iran, where they have a very high number of trans operations um, with the support of large sections of the theocratic regime, because of course, Iran is a violently homophobic country in which they would prefer an effeminate gay man to be turned into a woman, I'm doing air quotes as I say that, rather than to allow them to live as as gay men. So Yeah, Iran is really interesting because people tend to think the fact that Iran is the country that has the second uh, biggest number of sex ops every year after Thailand, mm. it had to be Thailand, obviously. The, the, the reason that's, that happens and the reason that so many gay people end up having gender reassignment surgery or whatever it's not just driven but i mean obviously it's largely driven by homophobia but it was a major success of the trans movement in iran and believe it or not there really is a, a trans movement in iran to get their equivalent of a gender recognition act and a gender recognition certificate so i think it was 19 when did um, ayatollah khomeini go by 87 i think it was two years after he came back a trans woman uh, activist was given an audience with Ayatollah Khomeini, and she, he, she convinced him that she was a perfect example of nature. There was a medical condition that nature had gone wrong, and she wanted to have sex change surgery. And he issued the Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa that basically said trans was cool. And of course, behind the scenes, they were thinking, well, this is perfect because we can. And so there are hundreds, thousands of young lesbians and gay men get their genitals chopped around every year in Mm. in Iran. Yeah, it it is extraordinary and almost unbelievable that people are agitating for the same here in the West and and getting it as well and and presenting that as something positive and progressive. On the on the homophobia thing, mm. I, I wanted to just ask you one more question on that. So Mermaids has appealed the Charity Commission's decision to give the LGB Alliance charitable status, and we can talk a bit more about that in a moment. But um, I, like many people, I followed the case while it was active. I know it's now been postponed uh, for a while. And there were some extraordinary reports and extraordinary scenes, and I just want to remind you of one. So um, Kate Harris, who is a 
comrade, a colleague of yours. She's a co-founder of the LGB Alliance. She was asked uh, when, when she was in, in, in the courtroom if she thinks a, a, a lesbian can have a penis. And her response, uh, she got quite tearful and it made a bit of a splash. People were quite I think lots of reasonable people were quite shocked that in 2022 in the United Kingdom, a lesbian was being almost interrogated in a courtroom about whether a man can be a lesbian. It it is completely surreal and ridiculous situation. And she said, I'm going to speak up for millions of lesbians around the world who are lesbians because we love other women. We will not be erased and we will not have any man with a penis tell us he's a lesbian because he feels he is. And it does seem, just to stick with the homophobia point for a a moment longer, it does almost feel like we've gone back to the love that dare not speak its name. Although where, you know, 100 or 150 years ago, the love that dare not speak its name was illegal. You could be arrested and imprisoned, as indeed Oscar Wilde himself was. Whereas now, homosexuality has almost become a love that dare not speak its name because off the gender identity and the pressure from that movement to say sex is passe, you, you're an idiot if you believe in biological sex, it's all very changeable and we can pick and choose our, our own gender as we please. How problematic do you think that is for younger generations in particular? And I, wa- I want to get on to the impact that this has on young people. But if we have young people who are growing up in a world in which homosexuality is increasingly seen as something a bit odd and bigoted, and we even have people like Stonewall saying that if a woman is exclusively attracted to a woman, then that's a form of bigotry. It's a form of prejudice. She's not opening herself up to trans uh, uh, women, i.e. men. For young people growing up in that kind of environment, when they hear those messages, doesn't it make it less likely that they will be out and proud in the way that the gay movement uh, advised people to be in the 70s and the 80s? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I I mean, I suppose, I mean, basically, if if there are trans activists, as we speak, going into schools, I I know, for example, Alex Drummond was um, a rather uh, famous is still a famous uh, trans activist in Britain. Six foot one, I think he is. Has a beard, a big beard, but wears a skirt. And was on the, the Stonewall's trans advisory panel, along with a whole bunch of other eccentrics, who helped them transform Stonewall from an LGB organization into a LGBT organization. So Alex was on that panel, was one of the advisors, goes into schools and tells kids he's a lesbian and he speaks that, yeah, I'm representing lesbians, a six foot one big burly bloke who transitioned at the age of 40 and has two kids. I think it's two kids and and a wife. Well, I mean, (laughs) how can that not confuse a girl who's Mm -hmm. who's trying to work out, is she a lesbian? What is a lesbian? I mean, lesbian has never... Lesbian was was never a word that was quite as fashionable as gay, anyway. Mm. And now you know is sort of like being erased all over the place. And if you're a gay a gay young teenage guy, and you're I mean for example, there's a performer who took who in fact was the first trans man to take part in Mr. Gay England, and Chio tweets regularly about isn't it great to be a gay man who menstruates. I have a vagina and I'm a gay man. Well, I'm sorry. I mean, if you're a, a, a 14-year-old kid growing up, how are you not confused? Yeah. You know, eventually I presume that these kids will settle down and be okay. But then you've got some kids 
who are, are some teenagers who are, who are gay, but also autistic and confused and, and troubled. And we know that girls in particular, teenagers going through puberty already before all this movement had problems with cutting and self-harm and bulimia and all the rest of it. So to add to that confusion on something as fundamental as sexuality seems to me a form of child abuse. Okay, let's talk about child abuse in, in that case and um, some of the very important pieces that you've written and some of the important things you've said about the use of puberty blockers and, and the transing of young people who in many cases would have become lesbians or gay men, gay boys, people growing up and exploring their sexuality. And as you say, some of them, a disproportionate number of them in, in relation to society more broadly, will have autism and other issues that makes it difficult for them to understand their place in the world and how they relate to the world. Growing numbers of those kinds of young people have been put on a trans conveyor belt in recent years. We've seen the Tavistock Clinic scandal, other examples where it has become pretty clear, I think, to most reasonable observers that young people are being rushed onto a medical path and uh, at a later stage in life, a surgical path where irreparable harm is being done to perfectly healthy bodies. We've seen young women having their breasts removed, their voices are deepening, they are growing moustaches, they're being turned into supposed men, many of whom would have been lesbians in another era. And of course, boys and young men are going through surgical procedures which are completely irreversible and cause a lot of damage. This is the real conversion therapy, isn't it? We have a situation where young people who, in many cases, not all cases, but many cases would have been homosexual, are being turned into the supposed correct sex. And we've reached a situation, it seems, where we are treating homosexuality as some kind of disorder that needs to be medically corrected. So talk to us a little bit about the harm you think it does to young people when they are put on this conveyor belt that takes them from the eight, from being a confused 13-year-old to being someone who's been trans in their later teenage years and, and the kind of damage you think that can do? Yeah, I mean, um, I did some research. I never got the show off the ground, but um, it was a show I really wanted to do. And it, was a, it just so happened that it was about the teenage brain. And the thing that's happened in the last 10 years, I mean, puberty blockers really took off in 97 or whatever with the Dutch Protocol, which was a group of Dutch scientists who did like minimal research and then started putting kids on under 16s on puberty blockers. And so this research wasn't available to them. So let's assume, let's give them the, the, the benefit of the doubt that they might have changed their mind if the latest research had been available to them. But in the last 10 years, scientists have done fMRI scans on teenagers and it, it really is a complete revelation. They did not know. They knew that, obviously, behavior changed, but they didn't know that the, the brain of adolescence is totally transformed. I think Lauren Steinberg is, is the, the, the big adolescent expert in the States, and he says it's the most radical change in the brain in your entire life. So your brain just grows until you're like 12 or, or hit uh, puberty and then something extraordinary happens inside where it's completely rewired and myelin gets layers are, are added and this is required in order that you can become an adolescent socially uh, an, an adult socially and in terms of behavior in terms of linking up with peers etc so 
puberty blockers stop this process that is absolutely fundamental. So, of course, everyone's focused on the physical stuff, like the genitals don't grow, mm. you, you know, the obvious sexual characteristics don't, don't um, grow in the way they would have otherwise, but the internal changes in the brain um, are, the, are the things that are really important. And the only, only animal trial that was ever done on puberty blockers in Glasgow University, as it turns out, showed that sheep... And, and I know people think, you know, sheep might not be relevant, but actually sheep are cleverer than you'd think. And, um, and they, they did work on sheep, partly because sheep are the same weight as human beings. And so, the, and so everything can be, you know, you can give them puberty blockers and you can measure the, the way in which the puberty blocker has distributed itself through the body. And they found real mental impairment in sheep. So... But that was done like, you know, 20 years after kids have been getting puberty blockers. So, yes, uh, the, the effects on the, the physical effects are terrible, especially as it turns out for boys because the, the, the penis grows. And if you're going to have a neo-vagina made, if you're male, uh, y- your penis is inverted. And if you have no penis to invert, you end up with a tiny little neo-vagina. Mm-hmm. Which is all very disgusting talking about it, but it, but it unfortunately needs to be because people people are being mm-hmm. sold this idea that somehow they go magically from puberty blockers and then they go in to to, be, to blossom as the sex that they really were when they're essentially asexual. We're creating a generation of young people that are unable to have a sex life. They they cannot. I mean, Jazz Jennings, the, the kid that has been brutally treated by. A system in America and is the star of, of a TV show. Um, Jazz has said that she, she doesn't have a clue what an orgasm is because mm-hmm. she had puberty blockers and then was taken and given cross sex hormones. So, yeah, physically and mentally, I think we, we have a, a really good supporter as Hakeem, who's a consultant psychiatrist, and he says if you're going to put kids through, um, give them puberty blockers, of course that you're going to make their gender dysphoria worse, not better because all their peers are going through puberty and they're stuck in an infant state, not understanding yeah. what's going on. So, and I think the Tavistock, the, the Tavistock did some research into the kids they were giving puberty blockers. They were forced to publish it eventually. And it showed that it, the puberty blockers did not help gender dysphoria. So the only reason we give puberty blockers is to help kids deal with their gender yeah. dysphoria. It doesn't help. And it has all these risks and, and, you know, terrible damage it creates. Hi, it's Fraser here, Deputy Editor of Spiked. Watching Netflix without ExpressVPN means shutting out a world of amazing content. It's like buying tickets to see Morrissey, knowing you'll only be allowed to see the support act. Normally, when you log into Netflix, you can only watch the shows that are made available in the country you live in. But with ExpressVPN, it lets you securely change your online location so you can access a whole world of content. And there are over 90 different countries to choose from, each with their own vast amount of films and TV shows. For instance, recently I really enjoyed re-watching American History X, probably Edward Norton's best ever performance. It's actually only available on Australian Netflix, but thanks to ExpressVPN, I was able to watch it here in the UK. To access it, all I had to do was open the ExpressVPN app, change my location to Australia, and when I hit refresh, the film was right there. So why choose ExpressVPN over other VPN services? For a start, it's compatible with all your devices. Phones, laptops, media consoles, 
smart TVs, and more. And it's not just for Netflix. It works on other streaming services too. So if you're outside the UK, then you can use it to watch BBC iPlayer. And for UK listeners, you can use it to access content on Hulu. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash Brendan. Don't forget to use that link at expressvpn.com slash Brendan to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And it strikes me as a, a lay person in, in this discussion that it's it seems to go against the entire principle of medicine, which, you know, and the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And the idea that you would take um, young people with perfectly healthy bodies, but confused minds and uh, mutilate the body rather than assisting them with what's in their minds seems to me to be such an extraordinary betrayal of medicine and obviously a betrayal of those young people. So I do hope, I have this vision of the future, hopefully it's not too far away, where we will look back with horror at some of the things that was were done to young people, young people with autism, young people who were exploring their possible homosexuality. I hope in the future we will feel horrified by some of that stuff you've just described there. Mm. I want to come on to uh, uh, the question of mermaids and uh, mermaids is a trans youth charity. You may not be able to say as much as you might want to say, given that there is a case going on and uh, mermaids is challenging the charitable status that has been awarded to the LGB Alliance. But, but one thing I did want to ask you about that, and let's see how much you can go into this, has been has been some of the things that have been in the public realm over the past week that we're speaking. And there has been an extraordinary blowback for mermaids because they have appealed uh, the Charity Commission's decision to, to give charitable status to the LGB Alliance. They say it doesn't serve a charitable purpose. It's just an anti-trans group. Uh, most of us recognise that that's entirely false and that it is entirely reasonable for lesbian, gays and bisexuals to have their own charity group uh, that represents their interests. But as a consequence of that, light has been shone on mermaids itself. And there have been quite a few stories over the past week or so which call into question mermaids' commitment to things like child safeguarding, ensuring that the young people who come to them are kept safe and given reasonable advice. So, for example, we've heard that Mermaids has been apparently distributing breast-binding materials to young girls behind the backs of their parents. I think the idea of encouraging uh, teenage girls to bind their breasts is horrific and completely negates what should be done with children going through puberty, which is to encourage them to be comfortable with their bodies, to celebrate the changes that are taking place. And instead, Mermaids has encouraged some children to bind their breasts without telling their parents. And then, of course, there's the more recent revelation that one of the trustees at Mermaids has previously given talks at pro-paedophile conferences and has written in a way that most people would find incredibly questionable about the queer child, the sexuality of children, and so on. And that has really blown up in Mermaid's face. So I don't know how much you can talk about Mermaid itself, but there is an irony, isn't there, in the way in which Mermaid's and the huge number of people in the celebrity world and the woke set uh, who, who support mermaids, the way in which they have really piled the pressure on LGB Alliance. But now, 
a lot of what they're doing is finally being called into question. Yeah, I mean, it is effectively sub judice, but um, the two two things have happened recently. That there's the, the, the trustee whose name wasn't on their website, but was listed in um, you know the charity commission's site, which is why he was discovered. But that academic who spoke in disgusting terms about pedophiles is only part of it. Is only a tiny part of this vast army of academics who sign up to this mishmash of so-called queer theory. And it seems to me it was a matter of time. If it wasn't mermaids, it would have been somewhere else. And and I I would not be at all surprised if there's another academic with a background like him who's sitting in plain view in other LGBT charities, because they've all signed up to this, this mishmash. It was complete accident that he, well, it, he probably would not have been noticed were mermaids not so much in the public eye. So there's definitely an irony there. Um, they've drawn yeah. more attention to themselves. But, I mean, even I could not have imagined. They, they weren't in the past, you know, in the 90s when mermaids were set up. They, 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 they actually didn't promote puberty blockers and they, they were concerned about young people who, you know, I don't know, maybe there are teenagers, 14, 15, who will eventually always have gone on to want to have sex changes or, or consider themselves trans. And so I, I don't think it's, it's fundamentally evil or wrong to think about how to help those kids who are going through absolutely extreme gender dysphoria. Um, the problem was that in order, as ever, you know, that the law of unintended consequences, in order to help that absolutely tiny minority, it was somehow thought appropriate to broadcast to loads of otherwise uh, not trans children um, a whole bunch of gender identity nonsense. And that's where mm-hmm. we've got to. And, and, of course, you then build in an incentive to organizations like Mermaids and, and every other LGBT group. You build in an incentive that they have to promote themselves more and they have to reach out to more people and more people because they, they want to grow and they want to fundraise and they want to be, you know, they want to have attention. They want to be the fashionable charity for, for celebrities to highlight and so they've got themselves into this right pickle. And I don't know how organizations like, like LGBT groups can rein in their activities so that they are doing more good than harm. Because I think that the majority of, of LGBT organizations, especially, I mean, schools are infested with bizarro groups that make mermaids look actually quite respectable. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's organizations going into schools that, I mean, I, I, there's one, if I can only uh, remember their name, because quite often they change them after one scandal, they change their name. But um, one goes in and, and she's quite openly on, on the promotional video fighting against heteronormativity in the primary school. But I mean, I mean, I just, I mean, I worry as a gay person because I think, oh my God, there's going to be such a backlash eventually from straight parents because, I mean, how dare people go into schools? I think their campaign is queering the primary school. I mean, there is almost nothing, nothing more predictable than that that will create a backlash. And and so it's not just mermaids. I mean, there are huge numbers of, of organizations which teach 
effectively that kids can be born in the wrong body. And that notion, which really um, triggers huge amounts of of mental ill health or uh, what would add to other conditions, mental health conditions, the notion that you can be born in the wrong body is almost designed to make a troubled youngster feel even more troubled. And yet that's what's being promoted in schools up and down the country. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to actually ask you about that issue in particular. So moving slightly beyond mermaids, because I know there's not a great deal you can say in relation to that, the, their appeal against the charitable status of the LGB alliance is, is ongoing. But in relation to this mermaid's trustee, who's been all over the news this week because of his speech to a pro-pedophile group, and then some of the comments you've just made there about campaigners who are introducing critiques of heteronormativity to very young children and talking about queering the curriculum or queering the school. I wanted to ask you about that because one of the prejudices against gay men in in the 1950s and the 1960s is that they were really pedophiles. You know, you think of those black and white public information films in the United States in the 1950s. It always featured a creepy looking homosexual man going after some 15 year old kid or something. That was the kind of image. And it was driven a lot by prejudice and the gay rights movement that emerged in the 1960s in the UK and the US and then really took off in the 70s as well was pretty clear that this was about freedom for adults to live in the way that they want to live without being persecuted by society or discriminated against or judged uh, constantly by the moral majority. So it was a very clear struggle for liberation by adults. So uh, those old prejudices about gay people being paedophiles were completely wrong and quite destructive when they were being pushed in the early days. But if you fast forward to the 2020s, as a consequence, I think, of things like queer theory and to a certain extent of the gender ideology, there is increasingly a blurring of the lines, isn't there, between adult children. So we do now have a situation where we see children uh, uh, being performed to by strippers or drag artists. And we even see children as drag artists in the US and they're celebrated by Pink News, for example, celebrates these quite sexualized looking drag children. And uh, we have the school situation where increasingly queer theory light is being taught in some situations in schools. And then the ultimate blurring of the lines is the growing campaign, it's still very small, but a growing campaign to redefine paedophiles as minor attracted persons and to put them somewhere on the LGBTQIAA line of sexual uh, identities. That's a real problem, isn't it? That's a problem firstly for children, but as you say, it's also a problem because there's likely at some point to be a backlash from concerned parents and concerned adults about the way in which children are being co-opted into some of these queer theory ideas? I mean, I don't speak for LGB Alliance in, in this respect. I mean, I've, I've been against LGBT organizations going into to, to schools from day one, and, I, and I'm, I'm against LGBT groups in schools. I, I don't see how you can safely have groups in schools that are defined around sexuality. I mean, you'd never have a heterosexual group for 12-year-olds. Let's all talk about heterosexuality and how liberating it is, and we'll bring in the music teacher and he can tell you all about being a heterosexual man. I mean, you would would all be arrested. I mean, it's just ridiculous. However, I mean, as I say, I mean, and I'm all for, you know, obviously everyone's for 
education and relationship and sex education talking about, you know, some people are gay and great, big deal. But pride groups and, and students, you know, sort of getting pupils who are 12, 13, and 14 all sitting down about talking about their sexuality, it just seems to me absolute madness. However, the problem to, to, that we've never got away from is, and, I, and I, I mean, I think you were being very kind to say that somehow the gay movement moved away from, from or managed to conquer completely its link with the creeps, if you like. They're, unfortunately, it's not true. It, you know, the, the, there were creeps in the gay movement in the 50s and the 60s, and there were, the majority, obviously, the majority of, of lesbians and gays are utterly opposed to this and always were. Unfortunately, you know, if you look at, say, the American gay movement, there were two great figures, um, Craig Rodwell, who came up with, with Pride and, and was at Stonewall. Um, but then you have creeps like Harry Hay, who, who, who was, a, was pro-pedophile and thought that you destroyed the nuclear family and that he, you know, openly said that he had sex at the age of nine and it had been nothing but good for him. And so, you know, and, and those people, uh, unfortunately, um, have always been in the fringes of the gay movement mm. for obvious reasons. And there are, you know, this academic mermaids and other people who produce work and professors who are at the heart of queer theory, like Gail Rubin, who said that pedophiles were, were freedom fighters. I mean, all of these people have to be hunted to the, you know, wherever they deserve to be. I mean, it's ridiculous that there is no other movement in the whole of our political life that gives even a, a, a iota of credence to people like that. So until we hunt them all out, then, you know, we're unfortunately going to be haunted. And as you say, there will always be a possibility of a backlash. And that, that's, if it was just sheer self-interest, I mean, I'm against it because any rational person should be yeah. against it. But yeah. I, I appeal to other gay people to be against it, partly just out of sheer bloody self-interest because they're going to come back to haunt us. Um, that's very well put. And I think... Um it leads me on to something else I wanted to ask you about, which um, which I think is one of the reasons it's difficult to do what you've just said needs to be done, which is to really expose the creeps who lurk around and to call into question the ideas and the behaviours that they are exhibiting or that they are teaching to the next generation. One thing that makes it difficult to do that is because there is there has been an extraordinarily censorious climate around gender ideology, queer theory, uh, the ability of people like you and others to raise questions about this. Uh, obviously, you carry on doing it, which is exactly the right attitude, but there is a real uh, attempt to silence those criticisms and to silence that questioning. We know that people are called bigots, they're called transphobes. You mentioned earlier on that um, women in particular really get it in the neck on this issue. And we've seen that, you know, the the in incredibly brave women who put their head above the parapet and call into question the idea that men can be women and who refuse to use preferred pronouns and who defend re biological reality. Those women are called the most extraordinary names. They are demonized. In some cases, they lose work. Uh, they lose their reputation. They are cast out of polite society. And you, I often think about the trickle-down effect that must have on people across society who, who don't even have a platform and who, don't, who aren't particularly well-known and don't have newspaper columns and all the rest of it. Uh, it clearly sends a message to those people that, you know, keep your mouth shut. Look what happens to J.K. Rowling. She will be called a bitch 
1,000 times a day simply for saying something reasonable. Imagine what would happen to you if you tried to do it. So it has this very chilling effect. So isn't one of the key responsibilities, I guess, of people who are concerned about the things that you've been talking about to push back quite hard against that kind of demonization and censorship and to insist on as free and robust a debate as possible about all of these things. Absolutely. I mean, you couldn't get a a better example of of why free speech matters. We did a whole exercise last year about trying to work out, we have all these different priorities and we thought until we calm down and work out what the three big priorities were, we weren't going to be very effective. One of them is child safeguarding. And uh, and I think, you know, that's beginning to bear some fruit, partly due to us, not obviously only or anything. Um, but but the other the other one is free speech because cause it's only when, I mean, I've always believed in free speech, but, but nothing will make you feel more enthusiastic about free speech than when people try to silence <laughs> you. And, and also, but, you know, the funny thing is it, it, you see how insidious it is because friends who you've been friends with, you know, for... 30 years, will suddenly start parroting lines to you or, or cutting you off, as, as many have. And you're left thinking, my God, it is so insidious that, that delusionary ideas can take hold and ruin relationships. You know, there are people in our organization whose relationships are broken down because one person takes a gender identity line and the other person doesn't. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, it's a bit like, I suppose, you know, when you see the French Revolution, and I'm reading Simon Sharma's book about the French Revolution at the moment, yeah. and how it just spirals and spirals and spirals. But the, the thing that allows it to really take off is when you're not allowed to to criticize the orthodoxy and then spirals have the freedom to, to, to spiral and, until you know the whole thing collapses and at the moment luckily i mean it's being optimistic it's wonderful that in old blighty um of all places turf island um we <laughs> we, we seem to be leading leading the world in turfdom and that, that's fantastic it's it must be to do with some robust Anglo-Saxon, even although I'm Scottish, I'll claim Anglo-Saxon, you know, Anglo-Saxon sort of robust debate. We won't put up with pretension and pomposity, and we love to, to pierce it. And, and it. and it must be why we're, we're doing pretty well in this front. We're beginning to push it back, whereas a country like America, where everyone bends over backwards not to be rude, um, is completely captured and nobody is willing to debate these issues. Malcolm, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.